OTB Rugby. It was a case of, it's going to be really difficult to beat this Gloucester team at home here, uh, but we owe it to the fans and ourselves to get a performance. It was a very emotional kind of Friday night meeting. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. Gaelic football on Off The Ball. With AIB, proud sponsors of the GAA Senior Football Championship. Check out hashtag the toughest for more. Okay, we're continuing our Gaelic football chats and I'm delighted to say we've got Keen O'Neill with us. Keen, how are you doing? Hi, Chair. How are you? I'm very well, I'm very well. Um, we had Eamon O'Shea on in this slot last week talking about the hurling. Oh, very good. And we didn't get on to the uh, actual preview of the game until very late in the day, which was probably my fault. But uh, <laughs> one of the flimsy reasons that we had for talking to him was like, what's it actually like to go up against a team who is in the midst of a sweet spot like uh, the way Tipperary were, or sorry, the way Kilkenny were when... Um, tip stopped the five in a row and he listed out the backroom team and of course your name came up with it so uh, that might have okay. been the trigger for us to uh, give you a call this week and see how you're doing and, and what's going on with your view of the world when it comes to football so before I get into all that uh, what was that set up like because it sounds like it was absolutely amazing oh, it really was it was phenomenal um, like Liam did such a great job like apart from being a brilliant manager in terms of managing the players and everything he put together a brilliant um, backroom team and I think it was just one of those things I, I come from the Limerick footballers um, into hurling I, I'd spent quite a lot of time working with the UL Fitzgibbon Cup team under uh, working with Jar Cunningham Limerick Jar versus Cork Jar who was a brilliant coach and manager in his own right so, I mean, I was very young at the time. I was absolutely thrilled and privileged to get involved. And then I read the, the rest of the management, the backroom team, like obviously Eamon, who you've mentioned, Mick Ryan, who went on to win in All-Ireland as a manager with TIP. Um, John Casey, phenomenal physiotherapist who was working with Munster Rugby at the time. And Aoife Hearn, who a lot of people will know from Operation Transformation, was their sports nutritionist. Outstanding professional, Caroline Currid, who's with Limerick now, outstanding at what she does. It was just a collection of people who, you know, who all were really good at what they did in their own space. But I just felt it was a great chemistry between the group. And a lot of that is down to Liam, obviously, and how he curated, you know, the management and the backroom team together. And not to mention a phenomenal group of players like the players. Some of those guys I'm still very close to this day, Jerry. You know, it was just a brilliant experience. How do you go from Limerick to Tip? Like, like, is there an interview? Do they ring you up and say, or do they like, had you put feelers out? Had they put feelers? Like, I, I don't think any of us really understand how that works. Yeah. Um, Jesus, you're going back to zero seven now. Um, no, like I've been with working with Mickey Ned, um, which is a brilliant experience in with the Limerick footballers. I was only in my mid twenties at the time. Now I, I got injured quite young, you know, um, and. Uh, was enjoying being involved coaching at that level away from the college scene, which which was great too. Um, so they were two great years. And then Liam gave me a ring one day. And I'm not sure, I can't remember. Was it because of the college scene? I'd say it was because we had a lot of tip hurlers playing Fitzgibbon with um, with UL at the time, you know. Um, really good guys. John Devan um, would have been our captain at the time, you know, and uh, his sister Coit scored one of the best goals I've ever seen in, uh, in hurling camogie there two weeks ago. You might remember where she pulled in that ball midair. Um, but I'd say that's where it came from. And I happened to be doing a little bit of work with Chumavara as well. Um, so I'd say there was just kind of connections and Liam was setting up a new management team, I suppose, working in sports science in UL um, obviously was an advantage because that was my day job as well as 
you know, getting myself into the coaching game as well, Ger. But um, no, I was honoured and privileged. And as I said, they were four of the best years of my life in the inter-county management, coaching, training scene, you know. To go back one step further, was the timing of you leaving school and getting into sports science kind of perfect when it comes to the GEA waking up to the whole notion that doing laps wasn't going to cut it anymore? I think so. I think so. Um, And I think timing and luck is so important in every walk of life, but particularly from from my kind of um, coaching careers perspective, um, I was very lucky in that the PEST department, physical education, sports sciences department in UL was the leading um, department in that space in the country. DCU have developed a lot since then. Um, of course, you have Jordanstown up in the north. Um, we're doing a lot of really good work in MTU and Cork in that regard. But it was all starting to come out of UL and I was involved with brilliant colleagues, brilliant peers, brilliant mentors. Um, and, and that definitely helps because it's a very small community. You know, the coaching community is number one, but the sports science community is well number two. Um, and I suppose people know people who know people and you get these phone calls. Do you rate him or do you rate her or is he good at this? Is she good at that? And I, I guess that served me very well in my early career, Jared, to be honest. Yeah. The When you were doing PE in college, did you know that you wanted to get into sports science and that this coaching was going to be a career? Or was that like, I might be a teacher. Was it obvious very early on that actually there was going to be opportunities for you in Ireland? Because I know loads of your contemporaries probably had to go away to England or America to, to get full time work. Yeah, and I wouldn't even call it a career. I, for me, I call it a passion. You know, I, I, I just, I absolutely love it. Um, and I definitely always wanted to be involved in coaching, no matter what, whether I was playing, not playing. Um, my first team, my first team I coached was, was I, th- I was 13 or 14 years of age. Um, I was in second year in school in Kildare, which you know very well in the Patricians. And my PE teacher at the time, Ronan McCool, a good Donegal man and a good GA man, was coaching the fresher basketball team, had good coaching experience, had no basketball experience, and asked me what I coached the first years when I was in second year in school on lunch breaks. And I just said, yeah, like I, I, I'd love to be involved in that stuff. And I kind of got a bit of a, a passion for it then, even though I was still playing. Um, and then in college and university, I, I coached the ladies football team and the O'Connor Cup team in UL for three years when I was still a student, um, which was the common thing back then, by the way. We weren't bringing in well-known high-performance coaches back then. Normally it was students coaching students um, and that goes for the, the men's teams as well, you know. So I kind of always was involved, um, but it just, it does take that bit of luck and that connection. Like from my break with Limerick and Mickey Ned, it would have came through PE circles. Mickey Ned, of course, the PE teacher trained in Strawberry Hill in London himself back in the day. Um, so I did always want to get involved in coaching and it didn't matter whether it was football or hurling or basketball because I coached basketball when I was younger as well. I just really loved the engagement with the players and being on the pitch or the court or whatever that case may be, you know. Um, the the multiple sports is, is really interesting and, and kind of helping to establish what you believe how the game should be played. But the fundamentals of understanding sports science and, and getting to grips with that and using that uh, as your... I don't know, grounding uh, uh, at, at inter-county level before you end up being a coach. That's a really interesting transition. And I'm kind of interested to see, was was it accidental? Was it by design? Or do you always feel like um, being a sports scientist is actually really a way of coaching people to be better anyway? 
Um, no, I wouldn't conflate the two. Um, I, I, I do think that you either have that passion to take it further or you're happy with your lot in terms of what you learn across those four years in college. Um, and because some people have no interest in coaching, but they have more or the same amount of knowledge in my domain than I would have. But maybe they just want to go into data analytics or they want to go into other aspects like sports nutrition. Um, I I do think I do think coaching is a vocation. And I know that sounds a bit, you know, I don't know, is, is it fluffy? But I think you really need to have a passion for working with other people. Because if you don't like people and you're in a dressing room with 40 different individuals all unique in their own different way being pulled from clubs all over a given county of a management team they may not even all be from the same county i really think you need to have those communication and interpersonal skills and and that want to get on with people as well as challenge people as well you know so um i i do think to be a coach you, you need to have that real deep-seated passion for it otherwise you'll build up you know, contempt and anger and frustration when things aren't going well. When things are going great, it's easy. It's easy, Jer. It's when things aren't going well, it can become a dark space at times, you know. So with TIP, was it pure strength and conditioning? Yeah, that's that's where I came in. Um, that My role was uh, working with the players in athletic development, physical development. And um, because I was doing a lot of coaching as well, it was great. I was able to get involved in more the contact side of things, the tackling side of things. Um, as well. So almost something that wasn't done a lot back then, but integrating aspects of coaching with physical training and development, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, it was probably one of the biggest lessons I learned way back then was from Liam and Eamon and Mick. So when we were doing some contact tasks, you know, over the years, um, my focus from my perspective was to get these guys, you know, physically ready, hardened up, ready for the hits of one of the greatest hurling teams of all time, i.e. Kilkenny. And um, I know we have Limerick now, but at times the lads would step in very quietly, very professionally and say, Kian, there's way too much fouling going on here. You know, so, you know, how the lads are dealing with the hits is amazing, but the players who are giving the hits or the pulls or the drags, that's going to be a free against us when we go out and play next week. And that was a huge learning for me. And that was kind of the, the interdisciplinary approach we had as a management team and a, and a support team that I thought it was brilliant. The hits, the pulls, players on the ground, fecking blood every now and again. But really, I was only half getting it right because I was missing the fact that what would be allowed when they crossed the whitewash into match day. And the lads were brilliant for helping me understand that from a hurling perspective, even though the physical development was happening all the time, you know, a big lesson for me. Yeah, I have a feeling, though, that like that's the start of the using your your uh, athletic development sessions as a means of coaching as well. That like not and I'm again not trying to conflate them, but that actually Every time you have the players, it's an opportunity to help their skills acquisition while at the same time making them fitter and stronger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I suppose I would have learned a huge amount from people, several aren't with us anymore, the great Dave Weldrick, um, RIP, who, in my opinion, was ahead of his time. You know, he was one of the initial analysts. Uh, Ger, I don't know if you remember, Dave, um, he was a dub, but that was one of the core lecturers in UL for many, many years. Um, he would have coached that Thoman team to the All-Ireland Club Championship with Spillane and Talty and the boys. But, um, I mean, he was one of the godfathers of actual coaching in terms of principles of play back in the, the 70s into the 80s. 
And he was teaching and coaching us things while we were students in the 90s. And very often I was looking at myself and my peers saying, ah, I don't know if this is right. Box games, 3v2, you know, layer it up to 4v2, layer it down to 3v4. And I'd never been coached that way. And you'd be questioning it. And it was only as years went by that you actually learned that, wow, how impactful is this? And now we're talking about it as a games-based approach, constraints-led approach to coaching. It's phenomenal how things have come um, full circle. But I would have been lucky to be have been exposed to that in the 90s, even though it took me a good 10 years to really cop on and say, wow, this actually makes a huge amount of sense. And now it's the fashionable thing in coaching, oh, yeah. believe it or not. Um, no more than a lot of skill acquisition stuff at the moment actually was born out of PE, fundamental physical education, back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. It's it's amazing how things are coming full circle. But um, at that time, Ger, as well, there was a brilliant man who you know, Mick Dempsey in Kilkenny. And Mick was doing exactly the same thing, a proud leash man from a football background who was working with Brian Cody and Martin Fogarty in that group. And we became very friendly over that time. We did a bit of work with Leinster Council together and he was doing exactly the same thing. And it was great just to be involved in that era where there was kind of a mix up between what's happening in football, what's happening in hurling. Paul Canerk is taking it to a whole new level now in hurling. Um, a lot of the root foundations of what he's doing. I wouldn't say it's born out of football, but it's born out of principles of play that are very common in football if that makes sense explain a bit about that will you when you say those principles of play that are, are common in football is that maintaining possession um trying to find pockets of of space to be able to retain the possession and uh, maybe you could explain it better to me <laughs> no you know you, you're absolutely right for me like when i got into hurling in, in those noughties in the early years in ul and then you know with tip very much of the game was taught about playing on instinct, you know, and just fire fire the ball, hit the ball as long as you can, as hard as you can, and let's win the 1v1 and the 2v2 duels, um, which is still a critically important part of the game. Um, but I do feel, um, and this is my own opinion, I do feel that hurling has become a lot more structured. I think the game will still move <laughs> incredibly fast. The ball will travel faster and further than any football ever will. But I do think there's a lot more structure and a lot more order on the game. Um, and you can see that in the style of play that Limerick play. They can mix it. I mean, if they want to play a, uh, a ball retention or a possession game, they can do that. They'll always have a man outside. They'll always have a runner from deep. Um, they'll always try and create those diagonal passes with a triangle, triangle run coming from support, what I call a trailer run. Um and there are things that wouldn't have been as common in, in hurling during my time working in the game. Um, but yeah, you look at Eamon O'Shea, who's one of the best coaches I've ever been honoured to work with. And one of his foundation principles was the importance of space creation and then space penetration. Um, and I, I just think that those principles, whether it's basketball, soccer, rugby, Gaelic football or hurling, the principles are the same. It's how you apply the principles is where tactics come in. You know, and, and tactics are specific to the team. Keen, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think you were at Newtown Shandrum for a while as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I was with Newtown Shandrum in uh, nine and ten. Um, it was a season that branched two years because we, we were very fortunate. A great bunch of players. We won Cork and then we won Munster. Um, and we ended up in a humdinger of an All-Ireland semi-final against uh, Ballyhale. Um, phenomenal! It was a phenomenal, phenomenal season. That Munster Club Championship was it was incredible because we played a dare from Limerick, super team. We played um, Ballygunner from Waterford, super team. 
And we also played, who am I missing there? Jesus Christ, I'm missing someone. Oh, Thurla Sars. Thurla Sars. Like it was a phenomenal campaign. And um, Ben and Jerry, Pat Mulcahy, Cahill Nocton, they were all on that team. And um, yeah, that, that was a great experience. But I learned an awful lot from them and how they played because they had a very specific straight line possession, give and go type of game plan. Um, and I remember the day I, I talked about maybe incorporating some diagonal balls. So from five to the 12 pocket, I nearly got kicked out of the club for that because, <laughs> because that was not in their DNA. And who is this? Who's this Kildare fellow with a big ball mindset trying to change how we play? But um, yeah, great but, experience. Because there's there's definitely a line where um, Newtown Chandler in the early period are the ones who inspire that Cork team uh, under Don O'Grady to adapt that same possession style and then I, I actually didn't even get a chance to get into this with Eamon O'Shea whether or not he was a reaction somehow to that or saw that and was like okay that's not for us or where his kind of vision of the space came from but you can kind of see that Canerk is looking at these things that have gone previously and obviously taking in all of the rest of the stuff that you've spoken about there too so there's like yeah. a there's like a real history of hurling tactics that could be sketched out yeah and I mean like, like, you know, that term styles make fights, you know, and I think that style of play that was born out of Newtown Shandrum was specifically designed because of that group of players spearheaded by Ben and Jerry. Let's call a spade a spade because it, it came from the work of their father coaching the club teams up through the ages. Um, and he designed that style of play based on what he felt would suit the type of players that he had at his disposal. And obviously they had a lot of success for a tiny, tiny village uh, in North Cork coming up through the age grades. And they just developed that further as they got to, to the adult grade. Jerk Cunningham from Limerick came in. That's when they won the All-Ireland, the club All-Ireland in 0-4 with Patsy Morrissey and a few others. But if you look at Limerick, Limerick are a totally different team because they're physical specimens um, thanks to the great work of the County Board of Limerick and like-minded people, Joe McKenna, Everod, um, I was part of that lifting the treaty kind of initiative when I was still in UL. And to see the, the fruits of its labour now, it's phenomenal. But they have physical specimen who also are technically brilliant. And then Paul and John Kiley and the management team have brought a tactical noose that just elevates them above, above all else. But if they tried to play the Newtown Chandra game, that, that just wouldn't work for them. It just wouldn't work because strategy is one thing. That's the generic principles of play. But tactics is how you apply the aspects of strategy that fit your game plan and your players, if that makes sense. And from a football perspective, then, uh, are, are, do you have, are you similar to Eamon and his, I have these principles, or would you be more of the actually the the cloth needs to be cut here depending on what is exactly available? And I know that's I'm suggesting that somehow that's binary and it's never binary. But um, if you're coming to a, a, a problem, is your solution to try and go, actually, you know what, I do have these principles which I think are going to be overwhelmingly successful at some point or actually I've got what I've got? I, I think the foundation principles of play never change and they never change no matter what the sport is. So what I mean by that is the principles of width, depth, space creation, flair, improvisation, support play. There are principles of play that apply to all invasion games. Where tactics come from is what principles of play you select to suit the game plan you think is best for your group of players, if that makes sense. So, like, for example, you look at what Donegal did under McGuinness. 
like the principles of play, like the way he stretched the pitch, particularly in terms of the depth. So from one goal to the to the next goal was phenomenal um, and the space that they created there. And then you look at what Paul does with Limerick and he really focuses on not just on depth, but he's a huge emphasis on width. And Dublin under Jim Gavin would have had that if you remember some of the attacking styles of play. It wasn't unusual to see 10 and 12 hugging the sidelines, 13 and 15 hugging the sidelines. That's the principles of width. And what they were trying to do there was to pull out two, five, four and seven to leave gaps between two, three, three, four and five, six, six, seven. And the principles are the same, but how they went about that were were quite different. Uh, And I think that's why tactics can change between games, even with the same team. But the principles are the key underpinnings or the foundations of their gameplay. You obviously have to work really hard with a group of players over a sustained period of time to get Dublin, for example, to be so good at, at implementing that. How long does that take generally? Like what? I mean, you know, obviously you can, you're always at it, I know. But before you would comfortably be able to say, OK, we've tried this out in training, we've applied it in matches, we've iterated on the basis of what we've seen in both training and the matches and now we're ready to go with this. I, I think I think it's, it's a really good question, but I think it depends on the group of players you're working with and how... You know, how they trust you, number one, as a management team, as a coaching team, um, how they feel it fits them and fits their style of play, and then their willingness to accept that. So I often talk about three things when, when I work with teams, and that's role clarity. So are you clear about the role? Um, the middle one is one people often forget, and that's role acceptance. Do you accept the role that we're asking of you? And then the third one is role execution. Very often people move from role clarity to role execution, and to forget about that piece in the middle, that if you have a player who's not buying into what you do, that's the missing link in terms of your, your setup. And I think if you have that trust and that communication, generally, I think the research will tell us that once it's co-created, that the players and the coaching ticket are working together to create that. I, I think that's where you'll see the greatest level of success. Um, and I think across the season, you know, if you wanted to change how a team plays, provided you have a good pre-season into league and you develop it into championship. You know, I, I think that's very due, but I think it's very possible. Um, last year with Galway, we played a very different tactical setup. And this is the, the 2022 season going into that Mayo match. Totally different tactical setup than we had played through the whole league. And we were able to master it in two weeks. And it was still a squeaky bump time into the match. It was a very tight match. But the point I'm making is the players... They really got what we were trying to do because of their previous two defeats from Mayo in the championship. And they accepted it because they felt that it would work. They were part of designing it. And then they executed on the day by and large for definitely 65 minutes of that match where we were six points up, you know. Um, so that's how quickly a tactic can be developed. But I think a strategy is a bigger thing. And, and that takes a lot of that takes a lot of time. And in that instance, for example, do you not practice that during the league because you don't want to put tape out there for everybody else to see? Or is it because you're kind of building up to decide, you know, you're gathering all the bits of information and it's only at the very last minute that you can actually decide, okay, this is what's actually going to work for us this time? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both, you know, and, and I'm not shying away from the question. Of course, that there is that element of we don't want to reveal our hand here and that might be something like a kick-out strategy or a set-piece strategy. Um, but also... 
because it was my year one, even though it was, it was the rest of the management team's year three, we were trying to develop new principles of play throughout the league. Um, and it was division two, as it happened. So we kind of had a little bit more latitude because you weren't playing the best teams in the country to establish what I would regard as core foundations of play. Um, and everyone, like we were very lucky, like, you know, you have Pork, you have Devo, you have Scan, you have Miho, like everyone was involved in developing that over the course of the, of the league. Um, but once the league was done and the league final was over, we just knew it was a totally different opposition we were facing in terms of a Mayo team who were flying high and in multiple All-Irelands in previous years. Um, so, yes, we didn't want to show our hand too soon, particularly to Mayo, not the rest of the country. But at the same time, I think everything we were doing during the league was building to that tactic if that makes sense. Yeah, totally, totally. And I'm just really interested in that whole not showing your hand because at some point you need to trial it in as close to match environment as you possibly can. So it's a, a bit of a high wire act. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. Absolutely. Uh, and I suppose th this year, you know, we had such a change and, you know, just to give a live example rather than just kind of speaking in the air, we had such a change in personnel, particularly defensively. You know, we were we were playing without, um, just say that last Mayo match, unfortunately our last match of the season, like you were playing a back six without Liam Silk, without Dylan McHugh, without Kieran Malloy. Um, and Sean Kelly was, was so with the play. So all of a sudden, that's that's 67% of your defence last year that really generated the foundation to get a team to an All-Ireland final. So, you know, it's not as easy to replicate that when the personnel haven't had the experience or the time to learn the way we did last year, where we were incredibly fortunate with injuries but we have a brilliant medical and SNC team which obviously helps um, Generally I don't know how much attention you pay to the noise about the quality of the game at the moment and the media coverage of um, you know the game is supposed to be dead and yet here we are everybody's excited about this after two great semi-finals and well the last round of the round robin uh, was, was it the second last round was amazing so one of the rounds the, the, it was the last yep, round of the, the round second round was last round yeah the quarterfinals yeah. weren't great that was it we had a you know, half the quarterfinals were good and half weren't. Like, personally, I think we need to cool the Jets on telling everybody how awful the game is and how you shouldn't enjoy this. And let's just see how it unfolds for a short period of time. I'm not saying forever, and I'm, I'm not blind to there being some issues, but certainly it seems like when the best teams play each other and the weather's reasonable, the game is good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, like, the game... I, I honestly don't think there's a huge amount between the top six or eight teams in the country anymore. I think Dublin were a phenomenal outfit and they were that bit further ahead. Even when they weren't playing particularly well, they were still winning All-Irelands. Um, but I think now, you know, it wouldn't have been unusual to have an All-Ireland final this year without Kerry or Dublin. And I think both teams and both management teams would, would accept that. Like Derry could well have beaten um, Kerry I, I, okay I think Dublin were too strong for Monaghan down the last quarter but they could have been caught early on so I, I think when teams know that there's not that much between them it can lead them to be a little bit cautious because they realise they have an opportunity to really do something special here and there's a couple of good examples of teams this year where you might have been surprised at how cautious they were playing when really I felt they were they potentially had the ability to be a lot better than that um, but I do think there were some matches that you, particularly at quarterfinal stage, you wouldn't have been happy as a spectator. But I do think you need to look at it at the other side and look at what all of those players, management backroom have invested in this 
and what must be going through their mind in terms of ensuring they get to the next round. You know, I, I think they're not the same thing how spectators and media view a game and how those in the inner sanctum of a dressing room view it. And and that's unfortunate that not everybody views it the same. You know? Well, to that end, then, there's a possibility that we'll overreact to the current situation and change rules. And I just am concerned about the law of unintended consequences when you start changing rules. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, I'm an outlier, Ger. I actually, I think the advanced mark is an excellent route. I'm an outlier and I know I am and I'm not getting, I don't want to get into an argument with anyone, but I'll tell you why. I think it's an excellent rule because it forces defenders to mark tighter. We went through a period of seven, eight, nine years where it was mass defence but zonal marking. And what I mean by zonal marking is defensive systems were not really worried about who gets a ball as long as they were 30 metres or further from the goal. So therefore, they were almost allowing players at times to get the ball and then to try and construct a two or a three-man press on the ball. Whereas now with the advanced mark, it's forcing defences to be more honest in how they defend. And if they're forced to be a little bit more honest and try and take out that easy catch that will lead to a score, well, then that leaves pockets of space in other parts of um, the attacking zone for the team in possession. And I know all the reasons why people hate it, don't get me wrong, a catch down here, a little dink pass from 20 me. I, I get all that. Um, in fact, we had a mark cut in, you know, um, in, in the Mayo match, actually. And, you know, you might have a conversation with that player and say, if you cut that that close again, would you take the mark? Or would you just say, right, I'm five metres from goal, I'm going at this. So I, I do get the other side, but I think it's definitely loosened up what I, I won't call it a scourge, but I will, the scourge of 14 men behind the ball that we had to endure for years. Okay, that's interesting because like that obviously is the science behind why we're doing it and it's been very well explained there and um, uh, I think everybody should be open to changing their minds. So it's certainly worth considering. Yeah, we, yeah. Are you in favour then of making any other change rule changes? I would like to see a situation whereby there's a little bit more structure on setups for kickouts. Now, I know this route is coming in and I've talked to particularly friends of mine from Northwest Donegal and they talk about particular pitches, for example, Guidor, whereby in a winter's day that even the best keeper, Rory Began, may not get the ball past the 45, if, if you understand what I'm saying. But I'd love to see even if there could be some level of structure position-wise the kickouts whereby it creates more one-on-one and 2v2 contests for the ball in the air. You know, I, I do think that's good. I thought it was positive bringing the ball from the 13 to the 20 yeah. because it took out what you might regard as cheap short kickouts. Um, but I, I'm not sure are there many more rules. I'm not a fan of three hand passes and it has to be kicked for the simple reason that to me, that invites more teams to put more bodies behind the ball because you know when the last hand pass is given, it has to be kicked. So I I, I don't think that those type of... I think they're reactive rules. I think you've said that already. I just think coaches and players, and not just coaches, players as well, need to be a little bit more innovative and creative in terms of trying to come up with ways to break down the systems that are there. Dublin started it with beating the mass defence. Everyone was hanging on to their coattails for a couple of years. And I think teams are better better at it now. But, you know, I, I do think we just need to let the game roll out and allow players and coaches together to come up with systems that suit them 
and try and get them over the line. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, when you're thinking about the game at the weekend, how do you think about the respective styles here making the fight that we're going to see on Sunday? Yeah, I can't wait for the weekend. <laughs> it's it's going to be a phenomenal, a phenomenal game. I think. Um, I think what will make the game most interesting for me, Jar, is I've often said it that I used to love now mainly when you're in a different dressing room being beaten by them, but I used to love playing Dublin um, and Kerry because, in my opinion, they both give you an opportunity to beat them every day you play them. Now Kerry have tightened that up a little bit with the way that that Tyke Morley is playing. Um, although Derry did a really nice job in terms of engaging him the last day. But both Dublin and Kerry and Mayo, to an extent, they'll always allow you to beat them because they're front foot teams. They'll just back themselves to score more. And that's why I think this particular game is going to be so exciting on um, on Sunday. I don't think either team is going to change too much from the style of play they've been playing all year. Um, so what's it going to come down to? Are Dublin going to take a step to protect that pocket, you know, in front of um, their four? I was very surprised that Derry left Chrissy McCaig, phenomenal player, as exposed as they did in the secondary part of the fence. So not to stop the ball going into Clifford, but when Clifford got the ball, there was never that much help coming, you know, a secondary tackle and let him pass it off to someone else who is a lower accuracy shooter than Clifford. I think Dublin will have to do something there. Um, the question mark is, is the is the Wiley Jack O'Connor being very clever by putting Stephen O'Brien into the starting 15 to pull a five or a seven out of position to create that space inside? Like there's loads of different things I've been thinking about when I was driving up from Cork to, to Kildare there today, you know, I think it'll be a great match. Um, when you, you mentioned Ty Morley in particular there, uh, are there bits in, in games that you look back on and go, there's a clear style here, but there's also some specific elements of a team that if if we nullify actually that's the, the heartbeat of the team yeah 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 no there really is and I, I think as much as you need to focus on your own game and your own performance I mean you also need to look at the dangers of the opposition but also the vulnerabilities there you know um, and I, I thought this was a segue question into last year's All-Ireland Final. I'm, I'm being a bit facetious there, Chair. Um, you know, we, we had a direct plan to engage um, Morley more last year. But when you had a game that was really developing around the brilliance of Shane, um, sorry, that's a work call. You know, the brilliance of Shane and his performance that day, sometimes you almost go with the flow of the game. You know, it still allowed Morley to sit, which had an impact on the rest of our forward play. Um, but our game plan, by and large, in terms of getting scores on the board, was working. Um, I, I think Dublin got away with it for years with Keno Sullivan because teams weren't brave enough to play six forwards up, which allowed us Sullivan to be the brilliant plus one that he was when he was playing. Um, and Dublin will play six up. So I can't wait to see how they engage Morley and how that impacts Kerry's defensive structure because I thought Derry nailed it attacking-wise. I thought they did a really good job, you know. Um, sorry, I've lost wind of your fucking question. No, that was it. That was it. It was like um, when you watch back stuff, you feel like you you can see what the true lifeblood of, an, of a team is. And like we, we always go with, oh, it's the matchups. And it's like, but ultimately sometimes some teams are so clearly defined but it's, a, it's only afterwards you can see it. It's like, OK, everything went through two key players and actually the next time we play them, we're going to have to shut them down. Yeah. 
Yeah. And sometimes you might have to do it within a game. Sure. Like we went into the Derry match last year. Um, you know, and this is not giving away state secrets because everyone would have seen this if they were watching the match. Um, and we were tagging, you know, a certain amount of players. But by tagging, for example, Connor Glass in midfield, we were leaving ourselves exposed, a little bit vulnerable down our left wing, their right wing. And at half time, we changed our tactic, our principle. And it's back to what we talked about earlier. We're coming full circle. Our principles of play never changed, but our tactic changed. And we went back to place more cover on that left wing and it totally transformed our performance in the second half. So sometimes you can have the best tactics in your mind and on the tactics board and in the training ground. But once you enter the match, you may need to say, whoa, this, this is not working. Yeah. And that's why I thought Dublin were so supreme during that six in a row. They weren't able to just change tactics between games. They were quite adept at doing it within games and huge respect has to go to the management and players there. Um, but I suppose the term we use a lot to answer your question directly, Ger, is matchups is a big thing that management teams and coaching tickets are looking at these days. Um, so, for example, look at the Connor Myler, Potty Clifford, um, Jewel. Um, and not just this year, look at it two years ago when Tyrone won that All-Ireland. Um, Myler had a phenomenal game that day. Um, whereas the last day you could see on Potty and his determination and his ambition um, that he wasn't going to take a step backwards there. And Myler's a phenomenal footballer, but his forward game was removed that day because of the responsibility he was given to nullify Potty, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a re- I, that's why I think it's so intriguing. Like, Mick Fitzsimons will take Clifford. Okay, I think we accept that. But will Seven sit in front of that pocket? Who knows? Um, Jason Foley will pick um, Khan. But which of the two matchups in terms of um, Graham O'Sullivan and Tom O'Sullivan are going to take Costello and are going to take um, Pascal? And, and if they switch that and it ends up with Tom O'Sullivan over in two, is that what Kerry want? Because 80% of his scores are kicked from the 12 pocket. He's outside of the left. So if he's defending over in two, that's diagonally 120, 30 metres from the 12 pocket where he is so, so good at kicking from distance. So does that impact the matchup there that Tom is going to pick up whoever is playing 13? It doesn't matter if it's Costello and it doesn't matter if it's um, Pascal. Like there to me are phenomenal stories that we need to see at 3.30 on Sunday, you know? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It doesn't sound like you've got an inkling yet about who's going to win or do you? No, I, I honest to God don't. I really don't. I, I think if Dublin defensively, because I think I read a stat there today, I think it was Morris Brosnan in the examiner. Um, David Clifford and Sean O'Shea have accounted for 55% of all Kerry scores this year. So, I mean, if you're in opposition, you know, management and, and group of players and you're trying to co-create your game plan here and you're saying, well, if we take these two guys out, now granted some of that has been freeze. I mean, who's going to score the other 45%? I think you're in a great position. But many teams have set out to stop David Clifford and, and have scratched their head walking off the pitch saying, what just happened there, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas Dublin don't seem to be as reliant, don't seem to be as reliant on any one or two or three players. Um, they seem to spread the scoring a little bit more. That could all change on, on Sunday. Who knows? All Ireland's tend to have a a storyline of their own, you know? 100%. Keen, great to chat with you. Thanks so much for being so uh, generous with your time. No bother, Ger. Good to chat again. You too. Enjoy the game. Thanks a million. Take care. Sloan. It's uh, Keen O'Neill there giving us some thoughts ahead of the game at the weekend. Um, that history of Irish coaching is just really interesting and the evolution of it. And uh, like uh, his generation have made it realistic for people to grow up as kids in Ireland and want to work in sport full time 
in our universities and uh, and then apply that knowledge to football to rugby to hurling to soccer um, and to all the other sports as well so um, yeah just a really interesting character Getting Football and Off the Ball is in partnership with AIB proud sponsors of the GEA Senior Football Championship check out hashtag the toughest for more Gaelic Football on Off the Ball with AIB proud sponsors of the GAA Senior Football Championship check out hashtag the toughest for more